And um, just around about this spot here, over 10 years ago, I got married, and the deed was done, and um, Gordon Dara preached, we sang a bit, and then as we turned to kind of walk out, super loud to the speakers came this, wah, I feel good. And it was a, it was a James Brown song. Um, as I've been preparing this passage, um, particularly this week, there's another James Brown song that's been just buzzing through my head, and it also starts with a wah, and then it just, he starts off by going, I'm back, doot, and there's trumpets, doot, I'm back. So this has kind of been buzzing through my song, because as we look, as we look at this passage, David is back, the David that we, we know and we love, we get a glimpse of the old David, the man who has a who's after God's heart, the man of faith and the man of action, where his faith and his action are in step. The circumstances in this passage are, are truly awful. But David's back. And in many ways, in this absolute tragic story, I kind of wonder whether he, in a little way, is singing this inside his heart. He sings a lot in this in this period of his life, there's loads of psalms that are written that we can reflect on. But um, I've been quite excited about this passage. It's, it's, there's so much detail in it. And, and tonight, we're going to just sort of read through it and take it in chunks, and I'm just going to comment as we go. But a little bit of context to, to where we are. We're in series two of the David story. Um, over a year ago, David did not preach through David's early years, walking the walk, and now we're in the, the second part, and we've been... Um, over the last number of Sunday evenings, working through talking the talk, which is David from, from when he becomes king. And we've been reminded in this series that David fails, he fails catastrophically, but David takes these failings to God in dialogue, and we can learn a lot from that. And David Dunlop has encouraged us in this series to reflect on and get a deeper understanding of how we as Christians can walk our talk in today's society. And this evening, we pick up this, this story, talking talk in, in 2 Samuel 15. And the stories of Absalom's conspiracy against his father, King David. Last week, David Nop told us a little bit about Absalom, how he had style over substance. And towards the end of last week's chapter, David the king allows Absalom back into his presence. He was in Jerusalem for two years out of the king's presence. And Absalom bows with his face to the ground and David takes hold of him and embraces him and kisses him. So all seems to be well between them. Let's read chapter 15 and see what's going on now. So the, first of all, I'll read verses one to six and then we'll pause and, and make some comment. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom will call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. 
And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. We left Absalom last week feigning humility before the king. And now he's out running around, misbehaving, and flaunting it before the king. This is a very public revolt in the mix. You can't steal the hearts of the people in the, in the shadows and in the background. Absalom has turned on the style with the people. He's there in his chariot, his horses, and the 50 men running before him. This is pure pomp. This is, as David told us about last week, style over substance. You know, it must have been like having a stretch limo down in the cathedral quarter or something. It was just totally ridiculous. He's probably learned this trick, however, from his grandfather on his mother's side. Whenever he um, fled, he went to Talmai, the, the king of Geshur, after he killed Amnon. But this was not the Israelite way. Israelite kings weren't really supposed to chain horses. David rode on a donkey. But here he is with the horses, with the 50 men running in front of him, probably shouting, hey, Absalom, Absalom the humble. Absalom's really industrious as well. He's, he's working at this. He's getting up early in the morning. David's in the palace, passive. And Absalom's getting up early in the morning, going to the gate where the people are coming and going. And he's exploiting the delays in the justice system so that he can win favor with the people. Absalom is a master politician. He's got this style and, and pomp but he's also acting as a man of the people. He's again feigning this humility whenever people come and, and bow down towards him. He's like, no, no, no. He takes hold of them and kisses them like a brother. Absalom must have, like, off-the-scale emotional intelligence. He knows exactly how to play the people. He's stealing their hearts. Above all else, guard your heart. We know this proverb really well, David and Lop shares it many times. Beware of style over substance. Let's continue to read verse 7. We'll read down to verse 12. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Amram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. So here we have the audacious Absalom with all his misbehaving under the nose of the king coming and making requests of him. David is still far too passive here. But the request to go and offer worship to the Lord, 
at Hebron seems reasonable, so passive David agrees, and off Absalom goes. It's interesting to note here that Absalom is going to Hebron to sacrifice to the Lord. There's no false god here, apart from maybe Absalom himself, but we're talking about two formal worshippers of God. Absalom goes to Hebron to pay his vows to the true God, and the conspiracy gains momentum in that place. A conspiracy against a man after God's own heart grew stronger in the minds of worshippers of the true God. Absalom's conspiracy is brilliant. It's organized, it's strong, it's effective, and there are these people involved that don't even know anything about it. These 200 invited guests. So there's plausible deniability here as well. This is political mastery. These 200 men were probably principals in Jerusalem. Probably would have been friends of, of, of David, and they're off to this big ceremony to worship God. In no way did they suspect there was alternative motives. They're probably loyal to David, but Absalom was able to draw them in so that people might think David was being deserted by his friends. Note, it's, it's not new for very good people and very good things to be used by bad people to put a credibility on bad practices. And religion can often and, and has often been used as a, as a stalking horse. Naively, followers of God can get drawn into a revolt without even knowing about it. And this pattern has been played out by Satan down through the centuries. And John reminds us in his letters to be wise to the antichrist, those that are against Christ, who are hard to spot and subtle in their ways. And in this part we've just read, the political mastery continues by sending for Ahithophel. And this is a big blow. Ahithophel was the leading political thinker. He had been David's counselor, his guide, his friend. Now, some things obviously happened between Ahithophel and David, but Ahithophel would have been so shrewd and measured that he would have gone nowhere near this. He wouldn't have joined conspiracy unless he was certain that it was going to be a success. Let's read on, verse 13 to 17. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. He's back. This is the David we admire. This is the man of action. Arise, he says. David acts swiftly when the time comes. It's the old David. He's making a plan, and he's calling a play, and it's a good play. His household, his servants are there with him. 
And you can just imagine, or I sort of just imagine that maybe some of his servants have seen this passive king and been a bit worried about him. And even though they're escaping to exile, they're loyal to him and maybe they too are kind of slightly happy that he's back, this man of action. And he acts to spare the city. He leaves. He does leave 10 concubines to look after the palace. And then when he's leaving, he halts to view everyone as they pass at the last house. Verse 18. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. And the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai, the Kittite, passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on towards the wilderness. As David pauses to watch his household pass by, he must have reflected that even though there are soldiers in the mix, this was a refugee column. It's not an army. There are families. There are children. When the Gittite troops pass, these men of Gath, which was Goliath's hometown, these Gentiles that seem to have been drawn to David, he's like, Okay, this is, this is ridiculous. Why is up, Ittai? Go back to, back to Absalom with my blessing. You, you don't need to come. If you had even been delayed a couple of days, you wouldn't have been caught up in this mess. You've just arrived, and you're going into exile. We would assume that the Gittites are mercenaries, kind of soldiers of fortune, if they've, if they've come to David in this way. But this guy, Ittai, with his walk-on part in the story of David. He's very much a kind of fringe player in the whole of Scripture, but he must be one of the most faithful characters in all Scripture. And he reminds us a bit of Ruth when Naomi presents her with a, a way of opting out. Ruth says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Your God is my God. And it's the same with Ittai. If you want to find Ittai, find David, because that's where he'll be. And the issue for Ittai was faithfulness, not fortune. So David says, go then, pass on. And as they all went, the land wept, it tells us. All the people watching on were brought to tears. This is so sad. The king has been brought so low. He won this city, he built it, he fortified it. And here he is in fear for his life, by his own son, and he's heading for shelter in the wilderness. And the people see this great king who brought them such blessing, wronged. 
and they see him in distress and they can do nothing to help, so they just cry and they just cry floods of tears. So the king crosses the brook Kidron. Verse 24. As Abathar came up, and behold, Zadok came up, also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar carry the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remain there. So here we have the priests coming along, Abathar, Zadok, and all the Levites, along with the ark of the covenant. And again, we have the old David, this man of action. He sends a priest back to engage in some priestly espionage. Something I want to flag here is as David and his household pass over the brook Kidron and, and head east, this is a little map of David's Jerusalem. So we've gone out of the gate there and gone over the Kidron Valley and moved eastward up the Mount of Olives. David's taking a standard route of exile. Adam and Eve were exiled to the east of Eden, banished from the presence of the Lord because of sin. But this is different. This is an exile with hope in it. David does not want to take the ark as a superstitious talisman. David knows that what he is experiencing is the fulfillment of the word of the Lord through the prophet Nathan. So he says, I will go into exile. I will leave the ark here. I want to see it again, and I will if the Lord restores me. This is an act of faith. The shrewdness that has returned to David, his, his actions, are not detached from his trust in God. If he is returned to Jerusalem, it will be the Lord's gift to him. This is an exile with hope in it. Let's read on, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is amongst the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David went up the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went. And his head was covered, and he was barefoot. And these are emblems of, of mourning. David was struck by the greatness of this tragedy for the nation, for his family, and for himself. Then David hears about Ahithophel. This must have been a massive blow. David must have thought, I'm done for. But the first thing he does is talk to God. He prays that Ahithophel's counsel gets frustrated. Verse 32. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, 
Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt in his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son, and by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering the city. David prayed that Ahithophel's council would get frustrated, and boom, God just answered his prayer. As David comes to the summit of the Mount of Olives, who should he meet but Hushai, the other master political advisor? So David, again, makes a plan and calls a play. He sends his loyal advisor Hushai back to Absalom as a spy so he could defeat the council of Ahithophel. Without wanting to spoil the next part of the story, that's exactly what happens. In this passage tonight, we get a glimpse of the old David. He's back. David was far too passive. Yes, David had repented, and he was forgiven, but he was forgiven in the palace. It is only once he goes into the wilderness, once he, as a 70-year-old man, is is climbing barefoot up the Mount of Olives, we see the old David. He has trusted the Lord his whole life. And we get to see this faith truly exposed in all its fullness at this, his time of trouble. So what? David McMillan used to say that often after working through a passage of Scripture. What does that mean for us? Well, We sit now and we can look at the Bible and we know that there's a redemptive historical flow. And there are things even in this passage that can point to Jesus. We know that Christ, we celebrated the Lord's table tonight. We know that Christ has come and fulfilled his mission. So we can look back through Jesus and we can think of this story. How does that relate to me? Who am I in this story? It's natural for us to place ourselves as the hero, so that's what we'll do. We're we're obviously David, a sinner, forgiven. But we have to ask ourselves, are we passively forgiven in the palace? Or have we been brought to the wilderness to be exposed and have our faith and actions work together in God's will? Now, the more I've thought about this passage, I've realized there's Absalom here as well. And it struck me, could I be Absalom? A worshiper of the true God, but self-seeking? Rushing way ahead with my own agenda? And maybe if we're truly honest, we can see how Absalom might think he's right. He's got so caught up in himself. He knows that his sister was wronged. He 
killed his brother. He probably thought it was right to do that. And he's been scheming against his passive king. And he thinks, yeah, I could do a better job at king. And he's off to worship God. And he might even have convinced himself that he's got some sort of moral high ground with, with all his schemes. And he's smart. He's clever. He's worked this all out. It's, it's a master plan. How could it be wrong? So I think in this passage, what we have are, are two kinds of not faith. Passivity is not faith. With David in the palace. And grasping and scheming is not faith. With David in the palace and Absalom parading up and down the streets in his chariot, David's not acting is not faith. And Absalom's hunger for the throne where he runs ahead and grasps is not faith. So David's inaction and Absalom's conspiring action by the strength of his own hands are both not faiths. And when David's faith starts to show signs of life again, his trusting and his action blend perfectly. When he gets the word of this conspiracy, we get this glimpse of the old David. And we see this wonderful fusion. You cannot have faith without action. We read about this in James chapter 2. And to have faith in God, there's a Hebrew word for faith, imuna. And imuna is not knowing that God exists or knowing that he will act. It's that the one with imuna will act with firmness towards God's will. If God says wait, it's faith to wait. If God says move, it's faith to move. When the cloud moved, the Israelites moved. When the cloud stayed put, the Israelites stayed put. Trust in God and in what he says. Sometimes he will say wait, sometimes he'll say move. Sometimes he'll have you make a plan. So to summarize what I think we can take from this passage, don't be naive and get drawn into revolt. Guard your heart. Maybe God is telling you tonight you need to get back to the old you. And if we find ourselves in or needing to go into the wilderness, Go with hope. And in faith, act with firmness towards God's will. If our choice is sitting in a palace, not having a clue what's going on outside, or walking barefoot up a mountain as a 70-year-old to live in the wilderness and have answered prayer just like that, what would be our choice? Maybe you might find you're sitting in the past tonight in a way, in a sense. What has happened to your joy? Paul says to the Galatians. You have fallen from your first love. Paul says to the Ephesians. Do we need to have God take us into the wilderness? going up the mountain of olives to get our attention through pain and affliction and exile. God may see I need to give you a glimpse of the old you. Arise and let us flee. The rebellion of Absalom and kings 
David's humiliating flight bring out all the better parts of the king's character and set him once again before us as a man after God's own heart? I mentioned earlier David sang a lot at this phase of his life, and we get a great insight into his psyche from the Psalms. Psalms marked by a firm confidence in God, an assured sense of the divine nearness and protection of God. Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 27, Psalm 41, 55, 61, 62, 63. Everywhere in all of them, David speaks as one who has now given all of his heart to God. I just want to read Psalm 27 and then that's where we'll, we'll finish. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked for the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up of my, my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witness has risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord.